You're listening to Liberty USA, sponsored by County Citizens Defending Freedom. You as an American have freedom in your DNA, and we are here to help educate, empower, and encourage you to stand for your freedom. Hi, County Citizens. Today I'm with Dr. Carol Swain, and she's been leading the charge in education for a while now. So, Dr. Carol, thank you for being here with me. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So worldview is something that we don't really understand until we're older. Looking back on your life, how did your worldview affect your childhood? I believe that as a child, your worldview is developing. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that um, I grew up in poverty in southwestern Virginia, one of 12 children. And my parents were not that well educated. In fact, my mother dropped out of high school my father had a third grade education. My stepfather had no education. My grandmother had an eighth grade education, but that actually was as far as she could go in the rural South when she was born in, I think she was born in 1903. And, um, and she was able to teach. And so she was pretty well educated. But my worldview was one that I was patriotic. I uh, believed I lived in the greatest nation in the world. And even though uh, what we would consider racism, systemic racism existed, as a child, I knew that things were getting better uh, for black people. And despite the poverty I grew up in, we had a television set at some point and I was able to watch how other people live, but also watch the civil rights movement unfold. And remember the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated and when um, Dr. Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, all of those assassinations impacted me as a child. And I would say that my uh, worldview as a child was one that I never felt personally that I had to be poor. And um, at some point, I felt like, um, I mean, I married at 16, I kind of dropped out, but I, I never felt I had to be poor. And I believed, and I think this was sort of the way people believed, that if you work hard uh, and you got an education, it would make a difference. And I can remember that my mother initially would not take any kind of welfare she would not allow her children to get free books or free lunches at school because uh, we didn't take charity. And if there was ever a family that charity was meant for, it was our family because we were as poor as you could imagine, just dirt poor. How did you frame your political beliefs as you got older? Well, you know something? Again, I remember uh, watching the civil rights movement unfold and I was a Democrat. Uh, most of my life. And I like to joke that when you're born, you know, black in the South, you're born black, uh, you're born Christian, and you're kind of born Democrat. And so I accepted, uh, you know, the Democratic Party identity without fully understanding everything about the political parties. And I went through a period of, uh, you might call it militancy, when I was um, in junior high and high school, that was during the time that James Brown came out with a song, Say It Loud, I'm Black and Proud. 
And for today, you know, that might not seem so impactful, but in the 1960s, to have a song that says, say it loud, I'm black and proud. And then people started wearing their hair natural, the way I wear my hair uh, today. There were people that were wearing their hair like that. And I wore my hair natural. And I can remember, um, I could draw some of the things that I did that would be considered acts of militancy that uh, George uh, Wallace, who was governor of Alabama, famous governor, uh, segregationist, I think he said segregation today, segregation now, segregation forever. Um, I drew a uh, wanted dead or alive poster of, of uh, George Wallace and I posted it on a tree where the school bus, and at that time we had integrated the, all the kids, uh, the white kids could see the wanted dead or alive poster on that tree. And I also painted a, a fist, a black power fist, on the back of a white pleather, it wasn't leather, jacket that I somehow acquired. And so I can remember the kids saying to my siblings, your sister's going to get in trouble because she's militant. <laughs> so that was the early Carol Swain. And I can tell you that growing up, when the riots took place in the 1960s, that... Um, I uh, always felt like I wanted a riot to take place, you know, where I lived and that nothing ever fun took place because it seemed like there would have been fun participating in marches, participating in rides. Uh, I can say as a child that I would have wanted to do that, but I didn't get the opportunity. Now, you said that you were a Democrat. What made your transition to being Republican or more on the more conservative side? Look, I'm 68 years old. I did not become a Republican officially until 2009. And so it was gradual. And I can tell you that the Democratic Party today is not the same Democratic Party that I grew up with that I thought I knew. Mm -hmm. But I also can tell you that I never truly knew the Democratic Party until I was much older. Uh, such as Virginia. I grew up in the state of Virginia. Um, the uh, That's been a Democrat state for most of its history. Um, governor, uh, The governor of Virginia led the massive resistance against integration. Um, his name was William F. Byrd, and there was a Byrd machine. And, um, and in parts of Virginia, they shut down the school system for almost 10 years rather than to integrate. And so um, I lived in a state where uh, resistance to integration was was just massive. And I was born in 1954, and that was the year of the Brown versus Board uh, 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 Supreme Court case desegregating schools all across America. But the court said in all deliberate speed, which meant as soon as it could be done, you know, in an orderly and acceptable way, well... I did not go to integrated schools until the end of the 1960s, and I didn't go very long before I dropped out because I married at 16. And I can tell you that uh, 1969, Linwood Holton was elected as the first Republican governor of Virginia. And the first thing that he did, his first major act, was take his school-age small children by the hand, walk them to Richmond Public Schools, which were either majority black by then, or they were almost majority black, and he enrolled his children into integrated public schools. That was the first Republican governor of Virginia. 
And that was a huge act. And um, it was something that was kind of lost on me uh, a few years ago when there was a big debate about the big switch. Did the parties switch? Did the uh, Democrats become the party of civil rights and Republicans become the party of white supremacy and oppression and all of this stuff like that? You know, I started doing some research uh, and also looking at my own home state. And if you actually look at um, the Democratic Party in Virginia, the more things change, the more they stay the same. They've always been oppressive. And what happened with the Democratic Party is they brought blacks in, some blacks in, like you look at the Congressional Black Caucus, they're probably the most radical wing. They had benefited individual blacks that they needed to serve their purposes, to carry their message. And even today, when you look at critical race theory, uh, there are black people, well-educated colleges and universities that are pushing for resegregation. They want, you know, separate course sections, separate dorms, um, uh, just all the separatism. The white people don't have to be on the front. They have to just endorse it and give the black people what they ask for. And it's as if the segregationists, the Democratic Party has always been the party of segregation. They have these black mouthpieces that are pushing a racist agenda. And any way you look at it, what's taking place today in America is very racist. And it violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. But they have racial and ethnic minorities pushing for these violations of the law. Mm-hmm. So fast forward in your life a little bit, and now you're a professor teaching at two of the most pristine universities, Princeton and Vanderbilt. What was the culture like when you were teaching? Uh, and, and so I'm not a professor now. I'm retired mm -hmm. from that. But I'm, you know, I have two businesses. I have a nonprofit. And so I'm not, I'm just doing something different. But um, I taught 28 years, uh, about 10 years at Princeton, uh, uh, 17 at uh, Vanderbilt, wow. and then I did um, a fellowship where I taught at Duke. And so altogether, I've taught for about 28 years. And um, the environment for me as a professor did not become truly hostile until I became Christian and I became conservative. Mm -hmm. And I had a late life, midlife Christian conversion experience in my 40s. And as I grew in my faith, I became more and more conservative. And that was a factor in my decision to leave the Democratic Party. Because uh, as I grew in my faith, there were just certain things that um, I knew that were condemned, um, you know, by the Bible, which I see as the inspired word of God. And I could not reconcile or being in a political party with, uh, with the platform. If you look at the platforms of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, it was clear to me that I could not remain a Democrat. Now, I also have to say that the Republican Party is changing in ways that it's beginning to look more like the Democratic Party. And George Wallace, despite all his faults, and he was the segregationist leader when I was a child, he said there's a dime's worth of difference between the two major parties. And he may have been right about that mm -hmm. on some issues today. <laughs> mm -hmm. So for a while, we've kind of seen in schools and colleges where teachers 
can indoctrinate students, right? But I think that in the past couple of years, and give me your opinion on this, but I, I almost see a little bit now that the students are indoctrinating the teachers in a way and holding these teachers to very, very high standards if they say something, if they don't say something. You know something, I um, grapple with this a lot because I look at my own beliefs and my own childhood and I look at the media and I ask myself the question, you know, was I indoctrinated? If I was, I was indoctrinated to love my country and, you know, to believe in the Constitution and, uh, you know, the Judeo-Christian values. And so maybe indoctrination has always been the case. What we find today on the college campuses that's different uh, from the time that I started my career and when I was a student is that the students literally run the place and the administrators draw huge six-figure salaries, seven, sometimes seven-figure salaries, and they're not actually um, leading. They're not guiding. They're not directing. And so they're acting as if an 18-year-old or 19-year-old or 22-year-old and I know that you're young and, you know, you, you're wise, but I think after having lived for, you know, for a length of time that your parents or your grandparents, that there are a lot of adults uh, that have wisdom that young people can learn from. But on the college campuses, it's easier for the administrators to uh, to allow the inmates to run the prison. And so mm -hmm. that's what's taking place. And it's to the detriment of the students because when they are protecting students from ideas that might make them uh, feel uncomfortable, they are denying those young people an education because I can tell you that true education takes place when you're exposed to ideas that make you uncomfortable, that you have to grapple, you have to search for truth. And, um, and that sort of develops you and you figure out what you believe through the grappling. But if you've been indoctrinated and now they're indoctrinating kids in K through 12, the, the nonsense that uh, that destroyed university campuses, in my opinion, we see it now in the K through 12. And that has happened because once the universities were taken over, the teachers ed programs, you know, they brought in the Marxism, the neo-Marxism uh, and uh, the CRT, the postmodernism that's been there for a while. But all of these ideas uh, you have people that are steeped in that. They know uh, how they want to change the world, but they're not teaching kids the basic skills that they need to survive. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a very um, dangerous environment. I've watched it change. It has changed to the detriment of students. And I don't believe that most colleges and universities are giving uh, parents value for the dollars that they're spending to educate their young people. Mm -hmm. So I, when I took my first college class, I was very young. I was about 16 and naive. And I remember sitting in my class and the teacher walks in and the first question out of his mouth was, every single one of you are pregnant. You don't want the baby. We're going to go one by one in this classroom and you're going to tell me if you would get an abortion or not. And I was oh my. like, which class was that? Sociology? It was a writing class. Uh, it was a literature and writing class. And I just remember looking and being like, I've heard about this. I've seen this on the news, but here I am sitting in class about to experience it for the first time and being like, wow, this is interesting. And I was one of the only two people in the entire classroom 
that said that they wouldn't get an abortion. Well, and that so, took a lot of courage. And, uh, and there were other people that felt the same way, but they didn't have your courage. Mm hmm. But that was just a sobering moment for me to realize, like, this is what it's going to be like moving ahead. But switching topics now to CRT, where did critical race theory originate? Well, I have a, a book that I published last year, and uh, it's called Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Burning Down the House. Mm -hmm. And that book was written because there were so many parents and policymakers and uh, individuals that were grappling with what was taking place in that K through 12 schools, they were trying to understand it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that book, which is short um, and has lots of uh, citations and even a glossary uh, uh, and chapters on how to fight back, uh, tells where it came from. And it's rooted in uh, cultural Marxism. And today, if you were to Google cultural Marxism, you would get all these things that would come back and say that it doesn't exist. You know, it's a right wing idea. Mm -hmm. But uh, six years ago, seven years ago, if you Googled it, you would uh, get uh, articles that actually talked about it. And um, and Tony, so it is neo-Marxism uh, and uh, cultural Marxism is sort of like an evolution of economic Marxism, Karl Marx. And so at the root of all this is Karl Marx. And at the root of cultural Marxism, uh, you find the disciples of Karl Marx who were trying to figure out why his economic theory failed. Mm -hmm. And they decided that it was the culture, in particular, the Christian culture that prevented um, people from, you know, standing up and fighting their oppression. And, um, there's an expression, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The people that have pushed cultural Marxism, they believe that it's possible through, you know, central planning and a Marxism, which is related to socialism, to create a utopia. And uh, it's never worked anywhere in the world, but they have believed that. And so it, uh, so it started uh, uh, with Karl Marx, uh, and it was brought to the U.S. through the... Um, uh, through some of his disciples that set up camp at Columbia University. And as they uh, churned out students at Columbia University, those students, you know, left. And over time, they spread out across the U.S. and they took their training and their ideas with them. But at the root of CRT is Marxism. And CRT is one of many different critical theories. Um, and you asked me critical race theory critical race theory itself can be traced to Harvard University, Derrick Bale, 1971. But critical theory itself uh, has a, mu a much longer um, um, gestation period that goes back to Karl Marx.